I think I'm pregnant. Now, don't be alarmed. Some of you are going to respond quite understandably. Some of you are like, man, you're one sick freak. Others um, are thinking, you know, I always wondered about you. There's something peculiar. Well, what's got me saying it is I'm looking at this verse on the screen where Paul says in Galatians 4.19, I am in pains of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. Ronald Fung translates that. That phrase, fully formed, he said, means uh, until you take the shape of Christ. So what he said is, I am in pains of childbirth for you until you take the shape of Christ. But if I'm reading this right, actually two people are pregnant, Paul and the people that he's in labor for. Because what he said is, I am in labor for you until you go into labor for him. That's prenatal language. Don't miss that. Because if you miss it, you'll miss one of the richest mysteries in the entire scripture, I think. That phrase, fully formed, they tell us, describes the process by which a fetus becomes an infant. Wilbur Dayton goes further and says, it's the process by which the fetus becomes the infant, becomes the child who bears the semblance of the parent themselves. Now with that background in mind, let me say it again. Paul is saying, in fact, I am in labor for you until you go into labor for him, until you take the shape of him. Until the infant or the embryo that is in you is fully formed. And that embryo becomes a person and that person is Jesus Christ. I am in labor for you until that happens. This is a mystery, isn't it? Conception Nobody understands this. We say we understand it. We've got the science for it until somebody can't get pregnant. Then all of a sudden, we don't know how it works anymore. No, we say it's a mystery. We were right the first time. It is a mystery. We don't know how it works. Something is conceived when God decides to move. And we know this instinctively because we say to ourselves when we can't get pregnant, why won't God do something for me? Throughout the scripture, there is images of this. Christ being formed in you. In John chapter 1, John says, As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons, the daughters of God. Born not of a human decision born not of natural descent, not of the mixing of bloods. It's how the ancients thought children were born. Born not of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus picks up this analogy two chapters later in John chapter 3 and says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Goes on to say, you shouldn't be surprised that I'm telling you this. You must be born again. Says it seven or eight times in just a few verses. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. 
Don't be surprised. And when Nicodemus appears surprised, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not know these things? It's as if he should have known this by reading the Old Testament. It's as if this metaphor, this idea of being born again is as old as the Old Testament and it was lost on him. Paul picks up this same idea and he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's like there's a new birth inside of him. The old has passed away and the new has come. So he says in Ephesians chapter 4, put on the new self, created, there's the word, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 15, I became your father through the gospel. You hear prenatal language, don't you? In 1 Peter 1 verse 23, Peter says, you were born not of corruptible seed. He doesn't mean the seed that you plant in the ground. He means the seed that a man plants in a woman and says, you were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, the living and enduring word of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about a conception that occurs at the beginning of new life. Don't be startled by this because it's possible that all of the great experiences that you and I have in this world are but a shadow of an even greater one. Marriage. How many are married? How many want to be? Oh, stop. <laughs> a wedding. Had a wedding yesterday. Sexuality. Are the kids gone? Sex. Conception of a child. Childbirth. Giving birth to a child. See, what happens is we look at all five of these things as if they were realities shedding light on something else in the scripture. But what if we have it backwards? What if these are not metaphors? What if these are in fact realities? And our experiences are but the shadow. So here's what I mean. Because there is a trinity, we have marriage. If God, who is three in one, didn't need to show us what that means, then he might not have invented marriage where the two become one. So whenever a person is married, they're in a relationship where it, for the first time, they're capable of seeing a mystery that is greater than the marriage. Because the incarnation, God who is eternal, wedding himself together with humanity that is mortal, because that is a deeper reality, we have weddings. But see, when I had my wedding, I missed this. I mean, I'm on the platform worried about vows, worried about screwing up, worried about 400 people. I was not thinking incarnation. No, no, I was thinking don't screw up, don't screw up. And I was thinking honeymoon starts tonight. 
I was not thinking Trinity, incarnation. You'd have to be sick to get that. But here's the beauty of it. If you've been married and you've had a wedding and you still have not peered into those deeper realities, you're missing something. You missed part of your own wedding because when you came on the platform, the language was all there. The movement was all there, and you missed it because you were worried about screwing up just like I was. But if you could somehow detach yourself and see what was happening to yourself when you came on the platform, you might be able to pause for a second and go, wait a second, this is a window into a deeper reality. What if the deeper reality is hagape love or hesed in the Old Testament? All it means is, self-giving, unmotivated, spontaneous love for another person, not for what is in them, but for what is in you. What if that is the reality and your way into it is sex? What if salvation or union with Christ is the reality and your way into it is you get pregnant. So far as I know, these five things, marriage, weddings, sexuality, conception, and having children, will none of them happen in heaven. So far as I know, some of you are like, shoot. <laughs> because it's possible in heaven, you have stepped into the greater reality for which everything else was the shadow. Are you still with me? Now, I said I needed your help. Now, you need to say, uh-huh, mm-mm, or mm, something. Say something, man. Sound like anything but a white church, please. It's possible that the entire virgin birth itself is but a window into your salvation. Think about it. You were minding your own business one day, and because God decided to act for reasons that are purely his own, he moved on your heart. The organ that you used was your ear. You heard the word of God, and when you heard it, the Holy Spirit conceived of something inside of your soul that was not existing before. And that which he conceived in you with the consent of your spirit, when you said, be it unto me as you have said, he conceived of a new life in you, and that you carry that life in you to this very day. You may not be thinking of your salvation in those terms, but it's entirely possible that that is not just an allegory, that is a reality. It might be possible that there is a way to carry a life in us that is non-physical. There is a way to actually create life that is non-sexual. It's possible that that exists just because we can't imagine it. Our daughter's pregnant. Wait, I shouldn't say that. 
One of my kids is pregnant. I have a boy and a girl. One of them's pregnant. If I tell you which one, I'll have to pay him. We started about 35 years ago, 32 years ago. I said, if I use you as an illustration, I'll pay you $2. So for 33 years, I've been forking it over, man. So last week, I somehow made a mistake, and I got down here ready to start the conference after the service, and my phone or my watch went off, and it just said, you owe me two bucks. I said, I'm in a meeting. Stop. <laughs> then she sent back and said, make that 20. Inflation. Obama. Obama's not even president, and he's still. So one of my kids is pregnant. And about three, or f- about three months ago, she sent a picture on the text when I was driving in the car. And I had to, like, look at it. And when I looked at it, I thought, this is amazing. There is a life inside of her that is not her life. Only a mother knows what this is. And yet it is attached to her life. She has to feed it, nurture it, protect it, carry it, but it is not her life. And it is not a mere extension of her life. It is the life of her and him. And yet it is the life of neither. It will have a personality and flesh and identity all its own. And yet it couldn't have it apart from them. As she ages, she will diminish, and this life will get larger until one day it may carry her. So let me get this right. I thought to myself, looking at my cell phone, going down I-75, there is a life in her, and she is in that life. And yet that life is in her. My wife said, why don't you just say wow? I said, I did. It just took a while. Uh, That is remarkable that you could be in something when something is in you. That's pregnancy. All of this strikes of words that Jesus used in John chapter 14. Listen to it. He says, Do you not believe that I am in my Father and my Father is in me? Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. At least believe on the count of the works themselves. Do you hear what he's saying? There is an interpenetration of Two that come together as one. He goes on to say that I am in this life and yet this life is in me and yet the life that I am in is greater than me. I will go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. He speaks of an interpenetration. The Father and the Son are wrapped around and in one another. He will go on to say to the disciples that this will happen to you. He says, I will send the Spirit to you, the Spirit of truth. So the day will come, Jesus said to the disciples, when the world will not see me, but you will see me. And the world will not know me, but 
you will know me, for I will be in you. It's that language again. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? I think that's what happened on the road to Emmaus, by the way. They were walking on the road to Emmaus, and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and he is recognized by them. I said this to you two weeks ago. How is it that Jesus shows up after the resurrection, and nobody who is not already a believer sees him? Why is that? Why does he not do a tour and prove that he's alive? Because he's not interested in proving he's alive. He's interested in forming something that is entirely new. And so he shows himself to disciples while he does not show himself to people who are not disciples. So Jesus says, on that day, when you see me and you know me, then you will know that I am in the Father. And listen for it. You are in me, and I am in you. Now I'll say it. Wow. That is amazing. You see, we are so used to thinking of salvation as if it were just a mere transaction. I invited Jesus into my heart, and he came. And when he died on the cross, he took the righteousness of God and he gave it to me. Also true. We think of it as a relationship. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Also true. But what you're hearing this morning is salvation's a miracle. You can't put your finger on this. God acts for reasons that are entirely his own. Not because you did this or did anything else. It's true. When God acts, you have to believe. You have to believe. But please understand, church, if God doesn't act, all of your believing is in vain. Have we forgotten that in conception there is still something only God can do? Have we forgotten that it's possible to want to be pregnant and never get pregnant? That it's possible to think you're pregnant and still not be pregnant? That it's possible to get pregnant and not carry to full term? That it's possible to not think you're pregnant and end up pregnant? <laughs> Is it possible then that there are Christians in all four categories? Some who think they are, but never were. Some who didn't think they were, end up are. There's a thing known as Kuvad syndrome. <clears throat> it means false pregnancy. Women almost never get it. Men do. When their wives get pregnant, men sometimes have sympathetic pregnancy. According to the men, uh, they experience all of the symptoms of pregnancy. 
They have morning sickness. They have voracious appetites. They have moodiness. They even have altered hormone levels. Some men have said, I had contractions. Now that is weird. That is truly weird. In fact, these men have all of the symptoms except there is no baby. Dave Drury, friend of mine, used to be in our church, had Kavad syndrome. Kathy was, I don't know, seven, eight months pregnant, anyway, showing, and Dave started feeling symptoms. Sick as crazy, and so they rushed him to the hospital, the ER. And when they came outside with a wheelchair, they were going to get Kathy, and Kathy's in the car going, No, no, not me, not me, him. <laughs> so they wheel the wheelchair over to Dave, and Dave gets in it. If you know Dave, you, guys, you deserve that. They make Dave get in a wheelchair and they wheel him into the ER and the aides are coming in. They're looking at Kathy going, oh, you're going to have a baby, a baby. She goes, not me, him. So they start to do an examination on Dave, though not in the stomach, but on the head. <laughs> he has Kovac syndrome. You see it? He has all of the symptoms except the baby. I wonder if there are a ton of people that have all of the symptoms because they have high, intense religious emotion. <laughs> they love to talk theology. They love to quote verses and have deep thoughts. They love to belong to living, vibrant organizations like the church. They have followed a carefully prescribed series of steps that some church pastor or evangelist has articulated. They might have a moral rigidity or a conservatism. They are convinced of what is right and what is wrong. They have all of the symptoms of new life, but they don't have life. There is no life. The Holy Spirit has somehow, I don't know, not conceived of something that is alive and growing in them. You say, why is this a big deal for you? Because if you travel through a Christian bookstore today, do it, don't listen to me, step into aisle six, pull any Christian book off of the book thing and read the dust jacket. And you will find that we are writing Christian books today to cure symptoms that the Holy Spirit was supposed to cure when he invented new life. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to get better. I'm saying, why are we writing them? And why are they bestsellers? Do these writers know that the church today is filled with false pregnancy? You can't disciple the dead. You can't do it. Only, listen to me, God makes things come alive. 
And he does this when he gets inside of your spirit and with your consent conceives of something that is entirely new. It hasn't existed before. It came from you, but not all from you. Came from him. And yet, it's neither him nor you. It's a consonant blend of the two. That life will have its own personality, its own expressions of the flesh. It will be neither, and it won't be both. It will be new. So you, oh church, you have a life in you this morning that is not your life. It is attached to your life. It can't live without you, but it is not your life. You must carry it. You must feed it and protect it. And yet, it is greater than you. It's not just an extension of you. It is a miraculous act of God. Period. Oh, wait, there's one more thing. Someday you'll diminish. And this life will get stronger. You won't carry it any longer. It'll carry you. So let me get this right. You are in this life. And yet this life is in you. How would you know? How would you know? How do you know that you're not just false pregnant? Well, there are different symptoms that Jesus gave in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. I'm not going to list them all right now. The next few weeks, we'll go over these symptoms. 250 years ago, our forefathers called them religious affections. These were natural dispositions that the Holy Spirit places in the heart of every genuine convert. For instance, Jesus said, when he comes, he will speak only of what I say. He will remind you of things that I said. And yet there are millions of Christians this morning who cannot scarcely remember a single thing he said. We know lines from movies and lines from songs, but the words of Jesus we cannot recall. This is not a problem of memory. It's a problem of interest. Flat, call it what it is. There is not interest enough in these things. Jesus said when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. And yet we are filled with people who always wonder, what is God's will for my life? Isn't it odd that we struggle with the very things he was sent to cure? I want to give you one this morning. And then I'm going to quit. And by the way, I'm almost done if you're panicking, by the way. When the Holy Spirit plants new life in you, you instinctively, innately, have a love for God. For God's own sake. Not your sake. 
like an infant cries out for its mother. Every genuinely born of God saint has a natural, almost primal cry for its father. You doubt this? Paul said in Romans chapter 8, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Keep reading. He said, through that spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. No one teaches us how to do that. They'll have to teach us how to discern it. They'll have to teach us how to develop it, how to know his voice from one that sounds like his voice. But they should not have to teach us a primal cry to be with the Father. There is a natural love for God for what is in God. We love God because He is awesome. He is amazing. And we are drawn to that instinctively. It's early. It's not developed. It's sometimes misguided. But it's always there. In some nascent form, it's always there. You can see it. There's a lot of talk these days about the love of God. Henry Nouwen, Brennan Manning, others like him have written books on how much God loves you. Some dude, I can't remember his name, talks about a sloppy wet kiss and oh how he loves us, oh how he loves us, oh how he loves us, oh how he loves. That was hard. And all of this is true. And we have a lot to learn. But the question this morning is not whether God loves you. Of course he does. It's whether you love God. That's the question. God's love for you has never been in question. It's your love for God. And if you really love God, how would you know? Jesus said there's one acid test. If you love me, obey me. It is not how we lose ourselves in worship, and it is not how much Bible and theology we know. It is we have a primal desire to obey Him. You'll have to teach me how to know and how to get better at it, but you should not have to teach me to want to obey Him. Thought occurred to me one time, I was leading all of these people to Jesus, seven of them in six days, and yet I found myself arguing with people over sin in their life. I mean, it happened to you. You're thinking, seriously, are we having this conversation? You're wondering why you can't do this and be a Christian. You're wondering how close can you get to the line and still go to heaven? I would think, are we really having this conversation? Is there not a primal desire to want to obey him? People, when you love him, it don't feel like obedience. No, no. It's what lovers do. You know the verse before he said, if you love me, obey me. You know what he said in that verse? He said, ask me anything in my name and I'll give it to you. Why would he say that? Because he loves you. He's saying, in effect, you cry out, and as a parent, I'll hear you. And then in verse 15, he flips it and says, and when I cry out as a child, you'll hear me. Mm. 
Mm, man. This morning, church, there is life in you. It is alive. It's growing. Maybe it hasn't in a while, but it is of God and it is gaining traction. Some of you may be in the obedience thing or saying, you know what? The truth is, Steve, I won't say it in church, but I don't actually want to obey him. I just know I should. Then the only thing you can do is what Teresa of Avia did. You say, Lord, I do not want you, but I want to want you. So you can just say, I do not want to obey you, but I want to want to obey you. Will you change my instincts? Will you let me be born of God, not just of humans? Others in this room are fully alive in Christ, and you're moving towards that fully formed day of Jesus. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to encourage you. I want you to hear the word of God seep into your bones. Would you stand, please? while I try to give it to you. Oh, church, listen to me. These are not my words. Now are we the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this. When he appears... We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You have not seen him, and yet you already love him. You do not see him now, and yet you believe in him, and you rejoice with an indescribable joy, for you are reaching the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Since then, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Set your minds on things above and not on things below. For you died and Christ, who is your life, has raised you. And when Christ, who is your life, shall return on that day, then you also will appear in glory.